Peace and blessings be upon you. Welcome to the Ta'lif Podcast, a space where we aim to provide content and connect our spiritual hearts with community, love, service, and prophetic wisdom. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Innalhamdalillahi na'maduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nasta'gfiruhu wa nasta'hdihu wa na'udhu billahi min shururi anfusina wa min sayyati a'malina فمن يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله ثم اما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمه الله we begin uh, in the second half of the chapter where imam ghazali says بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ولو قيل يبلغ ايضا بمجرد الايمان he says, if it said that a person will reach faith, will reach heaven on faith alone, meaning all you have to have is faith, meaning you don't have to do anything. We say, yes, this is true, right? He acknowledges that the Prophet وسلم, says that anybody that has even even a mustard seed of faith in their heart will enter paradise. The Prophet ﷺ has given us a firm promise that none of the people of la ilaha illallah, that there's nothing worthy of worship besides God, will abide eternally in hell. So if it said, you will arrive eventually by faith alone, Imam Ghazali says, yes, this is true. Walakin, but when will you arrive? Right? When will you get there? Right? He says, and how many hurdles can you make sure that you're going to be able to overcome and then he says, and the first hurdle is potentially the loss of your iman. I, I want you guys to pay very close attention to this because this is something that all of the theological schools are in agreement about. El iman yazidu Faith increases with good deeds and it decreases with disobedience. What, what do I mean by that? That the more deeds one does for the sake of God, the realer faith becomes. The closer one comes to certainty. And the more disobedience is performed by an individual, the less real faith becomes. Until finally, faith becomes something that isn't real at all. Right, iman The more you obey God, the more your iman increases. You see, you know, it's almost like, um, you know, uh, I was uh, giving an interfaith lecture, and um, uh, a Christian said to me, he said, you know, I really love the way that Muslims pray. And I was thinking, you know, if you really love it, you can take shahada and pray with us if you really love it. And so I, you know, I said, what is it that you love about it? He said, 
you have to prepare with these ablutions, right? This ritual washing. And then you have to orient yourself to Mecca. And then you have to go through these formulas of standing and bowing and reciting scripture. He said, if one, and you have to press your face, right? His explanation of the prayer was deeper than any Muslim. I was like, subhanAllah. He said, you have to take the highest part of your anatomy and put it on the ground. And he said, if you do all of that, I would be thinking, if God is not real, nothing in my life makes sense, right? Nothing in my life is intelligible. If you do all of that and faith is not real, it's like nothing in your life is intelligible. And I was thinking people who experience prayer, they feel that, right? It feels real what because you're praying. Now, if your faith becomes just a passing notion, oh yeah, I'm Muslim. It's very easy to, to eventually jettison that, right? It's very easy to lose that. So Imam Ghazali is saying, if you are resting on your actions alone, I mean, on your faith alone saying, you know what? Don't worry about a'mal salihah Don't worry about good deeds. How do you know that you will not lose your faith? by virtue of your disobedience. You see? Um, you know, I converted to Islam. And sometimes it'll just creep up on me as I'm driving down the street that one day I woke up and I wasn't Muslim. And that same day I went to bed and I was. SubhanAllah. And then I think, but the inverse is also true. Maybe that same day, some people woke up in a state of Islam and they went to bed in a state of kufr. We seek God's refuge from that. So this is kind of a stern warning to anyone that feels like, well, as long as I have faith, I'm good. How do you know that you'll be able to maintain your faith through that disobedience, right? The Prophet ﷺ told us, and this hadith is in the Sahih. This is a rigorously authenticated hadith that when a person does an act of disobedience, there's a stain that accrues on their heart. And if they rush to repentance, that stain is removed. But if they persist in that disobedience, the stain begins to, to, to spread. And eventually, the entire heart is encrusted, right? Many of us have experienced something like this, right? I've talked to people that said, you know, the first time I was hanging out with friends and we were in the car smoking weed, I was worried that the car was going to flip over. I was telling my man, yo, keep your hands on the wheel. Pay attention, pay attention. I don't want to die like this, man. Pay attention. He said, as I progressed in this act of disobedience, now I'm not even thinking about dying like this. I'm not even thinking about the potential danger of what I'm doing. I'm used to it. I'm accustomed to it now. Right? So the first danger of having a faith 
that is shorn of good works is that that faith will die. That faith can die. And the inverse is also true. Your faith is accentuated. It's watered. It's grown through good works. This is one of the reasons that, you know, if you ask most Muslims, when do you feel at your spiritual strongest? Most of us will say when? In the month of Ramadan. The month of Ramadan. Why? Why do you feel at your spiritual strongest in the month of Ramadan? Why? Why? This, it's not a rhetorical question. Because, be, be, because you're fasting, but even more than that, you're in the obedience of your Lord. Right? They came to one scholar, they asked him, what's your favorite aspect of Ramadan? He didn't say tarawih. He didn't say iftar. He didn't say Eid. He didn't say Eidi. Right? You know, I, you know, one year, I knew that we were doing something wrong as a family. We were overemphasizing iftar because my eldest daughter, she was like six at the time. She said, Dad, who is iftar? We spend all day talking about what we're getting for him. And I realized, dang, babe, all day we're just talking about we're getting this for iftar. We're doing this for iftar. She says, all we talk about is iftar. What we're getting for him, what we're doing for him, who is iftar? I said, subhanAllah. He said, no, my favorite aspect of Ramadan is being in the obedience of my Lord. That is my favorite aspect of Ramadan. That God said fast and I did it. And what results from that? You feel spiritually strong. You feel spiritually renewed. And such is the case with every act of obedience. You get stronger as you obey God. And this is not just modern polemic. Every traditional theological school, Al-Iman Yazidu Iman increases with faith. Imam Ghazali continues, وَإِذَا وَصَلَ يَكُونُ جِنِّيًّا مُفْلِسًا قَالَ الْحَسَنُ الْبَصْرِي رَحِمَهُ اللَّهُ يَقُولُ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى لِعِبَادِهِ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ أُدْخُلُ الْجَنَّةَ بِرَحْمَةِ وَاقْتَسِمُوهَا بِقَدْرِ أَعْمَالِكُمْ He says that, yes, you will arrive, but maybe you will arrive as a person going to Jannah that is bankrupt, jinniyan muflisan, right? The Prophet والسلام, and you can read about this in Surah Al-A'raf, people that, you know, they arrive to Jannah, but just by the skin of their teeth, after a very stressful, very exhausting reckoning, you know, one of the uh, realities of judgment that we don't contemplate is that when we are staring at eternity, it will make the temporality of this dunya seem like nothing. And this is why Allah Ta'ala says, when you ask people that lived long lives, how long were you in the earth? They will say, what? Yawman al ba'da yawm. A day or part of a day. Because this is how 90 years seems when compared to eternity. This is how 70 years seems 
when compared to eternity. So as our eternal fate is being decided, it will be very, very stressful, as you could imagine. The Prophet والسلام, in a rigorously authenticated hadith, he said, people will be drowning in their perspiration. Right? SubhanAllah. So Imam Ghazali is saying, yes, with faith, you will reach Jannah. But do you want to reach Jannah in this state? Right? Jinniyan muflisan. Right? You're going to paradise because of your faith, but you have nothing in terms of good deeds. Right? No assurance, no protection, experiencing all of the stress, all of the strain of Qiyamah. And then he mentions what Hassan al-Basri, the great Tabi'ah scholar mentioned, that God will say to his servants on the day of judgment, go forth, occupy paradise by my mercy. And take paradise according to according to your deeds. So how do you want to be? You know, um, you know what I find, subhanAllah, interesting is that growing up in the liberal context in which we live, we have this culture of like, be all you can be, right? Reach your fullest potential. Realize your wildest dreams. And yet when it comes to religious practice, we are spiritually uh, slovenly. We suffer spiritual sloth. Anything is good enough. And when it comes to my business, I want to be Fortune 500. When it comes to my fitness, I want to be a guru of sorts. But when it comes to my deen, uh, you know, as long as I pray, you know, you know, get the obligation off my back. As long as I do what's required. I mean, that's all that's required of me, right? You know, Ibn Ta'illah, he said, uh, and this was something that I found really compelling. He was, he was musing about connoisseurship. And just talking about different forms of connoisseurship. If you ever get an opportunity to spend time with an aficionado or a connoisseur of something, just note how passionate their engagement with the object of their connoisseurship is. They can tell you all kinds of deep, completely nerd out. It's like, it's not just coffee. It's like, do you taste the, the bass notes? This coffee was grown in Ethiopia. And it's grown in a region where the air contains a certain ratio. I'm like, so you're telling me it's a lot better than the coffee at the gas station, you know? I'm not a coffee drinker, right? But I am a connoisseur of many other things. People who know me know what those things are. And we can get into those things. Oh man, feel the fabric, you know, talk about the car. And then Ibn Ta'ala says, but you do realize that the object of that connoisseurship will probably end up in your toilet. I don't mean to upset your sensibilities, but he was speaking particularly to like gourmands, people that like really get into food. You emphasize all of the meretricious details of food 
and this food is going to end up in your toilet. But the baqiyat al-salihat, your good deeds that will greet you when you meet God, there's no connoisseurship. It's just a prayer. There's not a prayer at its best, a prayer that is mediocre, a prayer that is subpar. It's just a prayer. There's not a Ramadan at its best, a premier Ramadan, a Ramadan that is mediocre, a Ramadan that is subpar. There's no connoisseurship. And I thought to myself, subhanAllah, what a misapplication of this emphasis on excellence, right? You know, one of my good friends, he told me, he said, there are things that I'm very, very particular about. My clothes, my car, my home decor, you know, where I vacation. He's very wealthy. He said, but I try to apply that same scrupulousness to my ibadah, to my worship of God and to my relationships. Because as long as I'm applying that same wara, that same caution, that same care to my, my, my relationships and my worship, then if I do those things and some of those material things, I can claim for myself that this is a kind of ihsan that runs through my entire life. From the most important to the least significant, I like things the right way. But if I find myself emphasizing that excellence in my worldly affairs, in my food, in my clothes, in my car, in my home decor, in my business, but not in my worship and my relationships, it's not ihsan, it's self-aggrandizement. And it should be identified as self-aggrandizement, right? So here, Imam Ghazali is saying, look, with faith, you will reach the destination. You will reach Jannah with faith. But what about striving to be your best? What about the excellence? Because you will occupy heaven according to your deeds. The best, now, there's one caveat. There's one caveat that the Imam does not mention, but I have to mention it. And this is a source of solace for people like me, people struggling in their faith. A man who must have been thinking about this came to the Prophet and he said, Ya Rasulullah, Allah Ta'ala will allow us to inherit paradise according to our deeds. And you and the Salihun and all of the Prophets you guys will be in Firdaus al-A'la. You will be in the highest heaven. And even if I get into heaven, I'm going to be in the lowest heaven. And I desire your suhbah. I desire your companionship, Ya Rasulullah The Prophet looked at that man and he said, Anta ma'man ahbabt. You will be with those whom you love. Right? So even if we don't uh, reach that, um, that station with our striving, with our worship, with our deeds, we can reach that station with our love. Right? 
Sometimes a person will love a group of people, but she won't be able to do what they do. That love, that love might be your, your, your saving grace. You know, uh, my wife's grandmother, who's 100 years old, inshallah, she may make 101, um, deeply, devoutly Christian woman. You know, she would always, you know, say, love, love covers a great deal of sin. And I thought, you know, I told her, I said, you know, grandma, this is a statement of the messenger of Allah, right? Love, right? You will be with those whom you love. So here, Imam Ghazali is attempting to inspire us to strive, right, for the best that we can offer in terms of our deeds. But even if we don't get there with our deeds, we can get there with our hearts. We can get there with our love, inshallah. So I've, I've just been informed by Amir to, to, to wrap up and to open the floor for questions. So what you just mentioned about um, that these people can attain the same level if just by their heart. Um, my question is, is that love um, not verified through actions? Like, how do you know if that love is true? You so know, it's kind of like the same thing. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. You know, this is uh, something that is um, uh, the subject of a lot of contestation in our uh, tradition. Um, people that say that love is not necessarily shown through action usually talk about the hadith of Nu'iman. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a principal piece of evidence in this regard. Nu'iman was uh, a sahabi, all right, radiallahu anhum jami'an. And um, he was a practical joker, right? Um, uh, one, one, one story that always warms my heart when I think about Nu'iman is that he wanted to give the Prophet والسلام, a gift, but he didn't have any money. So he went to someone else and he told that person that the Prophet والسلام, needed to borrow money. And that person gave uh, Nu'iman uh, the money on behalf of the Prophet. والسلام. And Nu'iman took that money, bought a gift for the Prophet, والسلام, gave it to the Prophet. والسلام, uh, the Prophet والسلام, gave him a gift, right? Because mukafa'ah, right? Rasulullah He used to give gifts in exchange for gifts, right? He said, Tahadu wa tahabu, qala Nabi give gifts to one another and you will love one another, right? Later on, the man from whom the money was borrowed uh, came to the Prophet والسلام, and said, Ya Rasulullah, if you need my uh, routing number, my PayPal, and of course he didn't say that, but he said the uh, the seventh century Arabian equivalent, right? You know, whenever you get, you know, whenever you can pay me, it's not a problem. And the Prophet والسلام, said, "Pay? I, I'm not. I don't. I don't recollect a debt that I have to you." And the man said, "Yes, Nu'iman. He told me you needed money." And so the Prophet والسلام, summoned Nu'iman. You you borrow money on my account and. No, Iman said, Ya Rasulullah, how else do you think I gave you a gift? Remember the gift I gave? I don't have any money. 
It's the thought that counts. I just, you know, the Prophet ﷺ just started laughing. And then he gave the man the money he was owed, right? This was Nu'iman. There's other stories that, that I could tell you about Nu'iman's, his wicked sense of humor, right? You know, he was once, you know, traveling uh, with, you know, some other companions. And so he told um, uh, a group, he said, you know, there's one person with us that is, you know, actually enslaved, right? And I need some help kind of, you know, bringing him in. But when you grab him, he's going to tell you that he's not. So they grab the guy and the guy says, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm a free man. No, I told you he would say that. See, I told, <laughs> right? so, you know, did he? he said, no, I'm just kidding. He's a free man. I'm just kidding. And he was like a, 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 a practical joker. But the darker side of his personality, he was an alcoholic. You know, he was an alcoholic. You know, he was addicted to alcohol. Um, he would drink, and um, if caught, he would be punished, right? The had would be implemented on him. And um, the last time he was caught drinking, somebody spied on him. They looked over his wall, and they saw him getting drunk. And Nu'iman said, Ya Rasulullah, these people spied on me, you know. And the Prophet said, you know, if you see somebody spying on you, you should poke their, poke their eyes, right? But as they were going to punish him, somebody said, God's curse be upon you, Nu'iman. And the Prophet rushed to the people that said that. And they said, don't ever, he said, don't ever say that about Nu'iman. I don't know anything about him except that he loves Allah and he loves his messenger, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So even in spite of his alcoholism, his love for God, his love for the messenger of God was being attested to by the messenger of God, he was an alcoholic. And the prophet was telling people, this is someone who I know loves God, loves the messenger of God, So sometimes our actions can belie the love that exists in our hearts, that's possible, right? Sometimes we love and we behave in ways that are contradictory to that love because we are fallible human beings. Our Lord has said, and human beings have been created weak, right? Now, the other school, they say, no, the 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 tasdeeq, right? The the proof of love is manifest on the jawarih, is manifest on the limbs, right? That um, love is only as good as the lover, right? You can love, but the love that um, will save you is the love that results in adherence to the prophetic way. And their evidence is the verse of the Quran, قُلْ إِن كُنْتُمْ تُحِبُّونَ اللَّهَ فَاتَّبِعُونِي يُحْبِبُّكُمُ اللَّهُ وَيَغْفِرَ لَكُمْ ذَنُوبَكُمْ Allah Ta'ala says the Prophet, tells, tells the Prophet والسلام, to say, if you love God, then follow me. 
God will love you and God will forgive you of your sins. So some people say this is the love that matters. The love that results in sunnah, The love that results in following the prophetic way. Every other kind of love doesn't have that assurance. But alcoholism is certainly not following the prophetic way. And his love is not being negated. Right? So this is a, this is a, you know, a debate you know, in the tradition. Um, at the highest level, um, this, this debate um, can even be expressed in theological terms, right? When someone sins, you know, what is the state of their iman? Of course, the Khawarij, very well-known deviant group, they said if someone commits a kabira, a major sin, they don't have iman. But Ahl-Sunnah patently rejects that. Right, that is not a position of Ahl Sunnah. That if somebody commits a major sin, they don't have iman. Right. Similarly, if someone commits a major sin, we can't say they don't have love. Right. But Allah Subhanahu wa Taala will judge, and Allah knows best. Uh, do you know which one the Hanafi school follows? I believe. Hmm, I don't. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to conjecture. So I'll go back and I'll review. Um, but. You know, most Hanafis are Maturidi and Aqidah. And um, I, I believe that uh, the position of the Maturidis is that, um, especially in like, um, is that Iman is qalb. Iman is just the state of the heart. Iman is not connected to, not connected to the actions. But I don't know uh, how deeds are, are factor into their theology. At Azhar, we study Ash'ari, you know, theology. Whatever good happens to thee is from Allah, but whatever evil happens to thee is from thyself. So as somebody who deals with, you know, um, systemic, you know, poverty and uh, suffering, I mean, the child that was given birth and thrown in a dumpster by his mother and then lives to be an adult and becomes a murderer. Mm -hmm. This evil that he carried out, it was it was it was him, but it was because of the conditions mm -hmm. that he grew up in. And mm -hmm. people who live in suffering and live in poverty and come out of war and come out of all those conditions, mm -hmm. can we say in the end? I mean, explain it to me because it's from the Quran, and I don't want to make it a debate or anything. I just want to understand it. You know, one of the ways that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um, tries to make sure that we're at ease concerning his judgment subhanahu wa ta'ala is emphasizing in the Quran, inna rabbaka la yadhlimu ahad. Like your Lord does not oppress anyone. Your Lord does not wrong anyone. And when we think about a good comprehensive judgment, that always includes qara'in, right? I mean, of course, um, we studied Islamic law and the Prophet والسلام, we're talking about just earthly law, you know, avoid punishments with, you know, uh, mitigating factors. 
right? Just in a worldly system of law, pun punishments should be avoided through citing mitigating factors. What about this? What about that? You know, I remember um, studying in my second year, we were studying sadinka, you know, theft. And I was now, of course, entering um, college, I was under the same impression as everybody else. You know, in Islamic law, if you steal, yeah, right, that's, that's what. And just as my professor went through the distinction between sariqa and what's called ikhtilas, ikhtilas is pilfering, right? Pilfering, saying that if a person um, somehow can, 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 can argue that they felt entitled to what they took, right? It's a worker who's being under, underpaid. That's not, that's not sadinka, that's not theft. If the person doesn't, now, now this is like hardcore Islamic law. If the person takes something, but they don't breach a haram, meaning there was no enclosure that they had to enter to take something, like they took something, but it was in the public square. This is also not sadinka. If um, uh, a person can argue that they had dependents that were in need, they're iyal, they had children that had to eat, this does not result in the punishment of sadinka. This, this is just a, this is just the sharia. Which is, I'm just, just the sharia. What then, he said to me, do you think about the judgment of God that it would take into consideration every cosmic reality that informed the person's actions. And there is no one who shows mercy like God shows mercy, right? And Allah Ta'ala is emphasizing this, that no one is wronged by Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala. No one is wronged by Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala. And we have to, when thinking about justice, we have to number one, affirm our belief in divine mercy and then secondarily affirm our belief in divine justice you know the famous english uh, theologian roger bacon he said famously that my belief in divine justice is such that if all of humanity was placed in heaven and i were the only person confined to hell I would declare from the depth of hell divine justice, right? So no one will be wronged when we meet God, right? So like, and I, and I say this um, trying to put us at ease. Like when we say at the conclusion of our dua, you are the most merciful of those who show mercy. Do we think that just a formality, just something, we, just something we say? Or do we really believe that of every entity that can show mercy, none can show mercy like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? When we say in our dua that Allah's name is Al-Afu, He is the pardoner and He loves Afu, He loves to pardon. And then we declare from the depth of our souls, pardon us. Is this just a formality? Or do we really believe that God loves pardoning? 
So in the scenarios you mentioned, of course, I'm not able to say definitively how anybody will be judged, but I can say definitively, no one will be wronged. No one will be wronged. I, from the depth of our Iman, we can say nobody will be wronged when they're judged by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? And Allah's mercy overtakes his wrath. It precedes his wrath, right? Um, much of what we encounter in the Quran, we have to remember is not teaching us how to relate to God as theologians, right? It's teaching us how to develop a proper relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? So, you know, and I, because I, you know, I, I've had many teachers that I've asked about the same verse. And all of them have told me, you're thinking about this as a 21st century modern technocrat, right? Think about this as trying to develop adab with Allah, trying to develop manners with God, right? You remember that hadith, the Prophet wasalam, enters the cemetery. And he says, Ya Ahlan Qubur, Nahnu Nalhaku Bikum, inshaAllah. He says, Oh people of the graves, we will be joining you, inshaAllah. Now, death is something that is hatman. You don't have to say inshaAllah to death. You have to say, you know, if, if I die, inshaAllah. Uh, no, it's. Every soul shall taste death. My teacher said to me, why do you think the Prophet is saying, inshallah? He's teaching us what adab with Allah, manners with Allah. That it's not that one says, well, technically, you don't have to say God willing when you're talking about death. No, anything in the future, you say, inshallah, to remind you that God is in control of the future, right? A lot of the way that we are to come to this verse, because theologically, everything that happens to us is from Allah. Allah created you and what you do. Even when the Prophet stood before the kuffar at Badr and he threw the dirt, you didn't throw the dirt when you threw the dirt, but Allah threw the dirt. Right? Everything that happens is from Allah, the good and the bad. But in trying to cultivate a relationship with Allah, we recognize goodness. He's the pure source of that goodness. That goodness has come straight to me and I'm unworthy of it. But when something bad happens to me, this is the result of my own sins. This is the result of my own shortcomings, right? I attribute the bad to myself and I attribute the good to Allah to cultivate that, that relationship in kind of a true, you know, of course, Maha, you're very, mashallah, well-read, so I don't mind tossing out big terms with you, but in an ontological sense, everything is from Allah, right? The good, the bad, everything.
It's from Allah. But trying to cultivate that relationship, I attribute the good to God and I attribute the bad to myself, right? So I'm trying to address your question from, from both sides. One, the judgment side. And then just when we see bad things happening, how are we to understand those things, right? Um, um, another kind of, you know, and by the way, they say I spend too much time on each question. So forgive me. But, um, you know, the, the other, um, I think, implication of your question that I think is, you know, equally important is when we see things like a baby being thrown in uh, a dumpster, we have to know that God is not experienced through abstractions, like broad categories. God is experienced directly. And when we see something, instead of trying to go to what that direct experience might entail, because it could entail any number of things, right? For reflection, for like the story of Khidr, for a wisdom that we don't know, uh, any, everything we see, the good and the bad, we often go to kind of this abstract category of, you know, if God were good, why would this happen? If God is good, why is there famine? If God is good, why is there war? If God is good, why is there pestilence? If God is good, why is there extreme poverty? Instead of realizing that for the people directly experiencing those things, God is involved in some kind of direct action in their lives and you don't have access to it. And I don't have access to it. And that's why, um, you know, some people say the most ironic thing about the question of theodicy is that the people experiencing the stuff that other people say, if this is happening, I can't believe in God. They still believe in God. <laughs> right? They still, they, the person experiencing what you're talking about often still believes in God. But the person, because they have the direct experience, they know the whole experience. But the person looking at it through some abstract lens, how could there be this famine right you know how could god allow what happened to african americans to happen to african americans if god is god right i know people who say that they say this is why i can't believe in god i say i'm african american i believe in god no 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 you know i'm african it, it happened to my people and i believe in god so we have to be careful not to try to kind of understand god through these abstractions, but rather this, it's, it's an experience and it's direct and it's personal, right? It's personal. Um, so now I'm, I'm not sure if this is the best way to word this, but what is the best way to curate our daily prayers, both environmentally and spiritually slash mentally? I don't know. You said the best way to curate our daily prayers, both environmentally, spiritually, and mentally. Best way to curate. You know, it's always difficult when you get a question from someone that's clearly at a higher spiritual level than you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, man, you're curating your prayers? I'm just, 
I'm just, mashallah, just trying to make them one time, you know, subhanAllah. Yes, mashallah. But one thing that um, resonates with me in, in that regard um, is that if we make the practice of presence more regular in our lives, we will find that it's easier to be present in prayer. See, many of us, we're not present, period. We're not present in conversations with people that are standing right in front of us. We're not present in our daily activities. We don't, we're not present in anything. And then we magically expect to just be present in prayer, right? So I have no, no presence, no self-awareness. I'm kind of like uh, uh, perpetually distracted. You know, we, you know, in Arabic, the word is tashatatul fikr. I'm just, I'm all over the place. I'm thinking about the future, lingering in the past, thinking about what I got to do over here. And this is all the time. This is something endemic to my state. I'm always like that. I mean, my children are talking to me. I'm looking at my phone. Huh? Okay. Right? My, my wife is saying something to me. I'm preparing for Tet Leaf on Tuesday. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Really? Right. So if this is your normal state, why do you expect to be present in prayer? I know, I mean, I think we have to bring presence into our lives in everything, and then the state of presence can be heightened in prayer, right? Just trying to be present, right? In all of your moments, recognizing um, the unique and precious opportunities that they are. You know, um, uh, for anyone that considers him or herself romantic, and if you're a married man, you better be romantic, right? Um, romance grows out of a, a heightened recognition of the significance of moments. Like that you recognize the significance of the bond you share with this person. You recognize the significance of eating together or walking together or even arguing together. That you, there's a significance here, right? And that it's not just one kind of consistent stream of just autopilot, right? That you, there's significance here. And I think that the key to uh, praying with khushua, with reverence, is recognizing the significance of your prayer. Like, subhanAllah, right? With, with, with the world turning and all of the commotion and all of my responsibilities, Allah has chosen me, has given me tawfiq to stand and remember him in the way he instructed his prophet وسلم, to remember him. Man, that's great. If you recognize it as being significant in that way, how can you just like rush through it? How can you just kind of fall through it? Like, no, it's, it's much too, um, you know, for lack of a better term, it's too deep for that, right? But many things are, too deep to just be rushed through, right? Um, subhanAllah, you know, I think that, um, and I don't, I don't mean to make this 
you know, uh, somber or sad, but the experience of being a widower, you know, it made me think back and I was, I was, I was married to my eldest daughter's mother, Allah for five years and, and, and she passed um, shortly after our fifth anniversary. You know, when I was thinking back, every single moment was like, um, uh, it acquired this new significance, you know, every moment. But of course, at the time, I just took those things for granted. Oh, you know, you'll be here forever. So, you know, and I'll be here forever. So what's the big deal? You know, you stay angry a day or you talk, you don't talk. You know, but I think when you have a life-changing moment that puts things into perspective, where it's like, subhanAllah, I didn't realize that every moment that we spend together was already decreed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that when we were coming to those last moments together, that was the end of our, of our time together. It was over. That was it. That was the risk. It expired. And I think that with your prayers, you just don't know when your, which prayer will be the last prayer. You don't know, you know? Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a kind of funny saying in English that if you pray, if you live every day like it's your last day, one day you'll surely be right, <laughs> you know, right? If you pray every prayer as if it's your last prayer, one prayer, you will certainly be right, right? And so trying to see that significance that, you know, this might be the last one. This might be the last time that I get to do this, right? And trying to approach prayer with that level of focus, it's, it's very difficult. And I think that um, the other thing that um, I think we forget is that, you know, um, in, in heightened, Devotion also requires stamina. Like some of, we just don't have the stamina for it. It's like, it's like, I, I can, I can, I can, I can, uh, you know, really focus for a couple raka'at, but after that, it's like, I just, I don't have the stamina. And that stamina has to be developed. It has to be built. It has to be cultivated, you know, and wherever you start, it's okay. You know, I always tell the story that uh, once we were at the masjid, for the sake of this story, I won't say which one. <laughs> but we prayed Salatul Isha. And the Imam prayed four raka'at. He prayed four cycles of prayer, four units of prayer. But after the prayer, he said, was that four or three? And one brother said, no, no, it was definitely four because I own four gas stations. And I think about what needs to be restocked at a different gas station every rakah of the prayer. And I got through all of my inventory. And we were like, you said that out loud? It's not that you do, I mean, wherever you are, like you said that at the masjid? Only thing I've ever heard crazier than that is like, please, no, you, you lead the prayer. No, you lead the prayer. You, no, no, I only lead when I have wudu, you know. <laughs> yeah. But he's like, 
what? Right? But, you know, he just needs to work on that, 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 that stamina. You know, devotion, it, you have to, it, it takes some stamina. You know, presence, it, 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 it requires, uh, you know, practice. You know, it requires practice. Um, in this regard, you know, we used to have at Tetlif, you know, Micah Anderson used to teach mindfulness and meditation. And uh, many years ago, subhanAllah, time flies, man. I remember going to the Green Gulch uh, Zen Meditation Center, you know, for the Tetlif MMP program and sitting with Micah and struggling just to be present, not, you know, which is different than Dikr. Not to remember Allah or just to just sit in a state of just stillness and presence. I mean, I couldn't get through three minutes. I couldn't get through three minutes. So that kind of uh, devotional focus, mashallah, it requires, you know, um, practice, man. Um, you know, in terms of the significance of prayer. Now, if you want something from the shari'i, from the fiqh tradition, that whenever I think about this, I'm like, Whoa, that in fiqh, and this is all of the madahib. If you want to make hajj, you want to make hajj, I want to go to hajj. And getting to the haram entails missing a single prayer, the sabil is not clear for you to make hajj. Think about that. That is the significance of your prayers. That if you're like, I intend to make hajj, but I'm going to have to miss a few prayers getting there then hajj is not it's, not, it's not the year for you to make hajj. That hajj is not wajib upon you until you can get to the haram without missing any prayers. That's in all of the madahib. That if it's like, I want to make hajj, but I got to miss a few prayers to make hajj. No, it's not. And hajj is not wajib for you. It's not wajib until you can get there without missing any prayers. SubhanAllah. Think of, that is the significance of the prayer. Right? Sometimes I think about that as I'm making takbirat al-ihram. SubhanAllah, this is, this is this act of prayer. Right? The Prophet والسلام, on the night of the, um, the Isra, the Mi'raj, entering the direct presence of God, he received the prayer. Right? So also think about that. The Prophet والسلام, received the prayer while in the direct presence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In the divine presence. And, um, you know, many scholars say that knowing that the Prophet ﷺ was going to descend and come back to earth, the prayer was what he was given to keep him attached to the divine presence. And that's why he said in an authentic hadith, the closest that the servant is to her Lord is in the prayer. Right, so this is, this is the significance of the prayer. And then we know that originally the number of the prayers was 50, right? And it was reduced to five. But if we make those five, we get the reward of 50. SubhanAllah. Right, so, you know, just thinking, uh, thinking about your prayer and prioritizing your prayer. Like just, you know, practically, I try to think about my prayer and my travel. So like when I'm booking flights, because I travel for work on weekends, I try to think, okay, at what point am I going to make Asr? At what point am I going to make Maghrib? 
at what point am I going to make Isha? Right. And trying to, and like a willingness to book around that, even if it means that I'm waiting a little bit longer for my flight. Right. That feels like, man, this is my prayer. Right. This is my prayer. So um, I hope that just provides, you know, you know, a few very random kinds of uh, motivations to, to, to approach, you know, uh, the prayer in a, um, a heightened sense of, of presence and, and spiritual awareness. Um, my question is related to the relationship or interaction between the aqsh and the ihsas, which is like feeling. So I saw a diagram of how there's like, you know, the sadr and the alb and the it's open to different influences. He just went straight Egyptian there, the Alp. <laughs> well, and so you have like the divine suggestions, angelic, uh, nafsi, and mm -hmm. demonic. But then you have, and then I saw the excess or feelings there, like emotional sensations um, um, in the diagram. So I'm curious in relation to the topic of spiritual struggles or, um, you know, like for instance, like getting up to pray or, you know, mm. um, avoiding sin that you might enjoy or doing mm. a good deed that you're not, that you're not in the mood for. Um, how does the act play out? Cause I'm like, there's not much mm. literature about it. So, oh, okay. You know, it gives me great pleasure to say, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I actually don't know. You know, I, I think that, um, hmm, yeah, uh, uncle, uncle, because it's above, above my level of, I haven't, I haven't contemplated that question, um, but I'm going to think about it. You know, I'm going to think about it. And I'm also going to put it before some senior level, you know, because I actually understand the question. Because it's something I've contemplated myself. Um, I've even looked in, you know, Shamila and, you know, physical libraries trying to find something written about this, this uh, topic. And it's very difficult to, to find anything beyond something very broad and impressionistic that the Akal, um, uh, the Akal has the, the role of kind of, um, you know, categorizing and making distinctions, right? The intellect makes distinctions among the feelings and the sensations and which of those uh, should be, uh, you know, avoided, which of those can be indulged, et cetera. But I get the sense that you're looking for something a bit more um, um, that kind of speaks to kind of the metaphysical connection between all of that. Where's this coming from? Where's that coming from? How do they interact and, and, and kind of, um, how do we make sense of them in the context of spiritual struggle? That's how I understand the question. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I just, um, going back to that curating your prayer question, I was, subhanAllah, I was, uh, um, before, while I was in school and working, literally working at Starbucks, I, I would rush home and like, I'd be like, oh, I got to make this prayer. I miss one, this one, this one. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, now I have an office job. And, and before I heard this quote, um, I believe it was either from uh, Dr. Omar Suleiman, or I can't remember, but um, I was like, I had my own office and I was making the prayers like close to each other. 
so that I was like, oh, you know, I'll just do this meeting and I'll, but then I was thinking like, I complained so much when I was at Starbucks thinking like I'm not making prayers. And now I have the ability in my own office. And subhanAllah, when I heard this podcast, he was saying like, when you delay prayers, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala delays things for you. So when you, when you rush mm. to make that prayer, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will rush because Allah you're, Allah. so I, I was like, oh my gosh, Allah. subhanAllah. So, so alhamdulillah, now I'm like, I'll be in that meeting. Give me a second. Like, Allah so Allah I, I think Allah that that kind of benefits that question, inshallah. No, jazakillah khair. Jazakillah khair. khair. MashaAllah. Beautiful contribution. Um, this is about like um, your other question that you just answered um, about prayer. Um, is it true that the only time we are truly in the presence of Allah is during prayer and that the rest of the time he's just like, he's aware of us, but we're not like in his presence? No, we, I mean, in terms of, uh, Allah's present. Allah's always present. His presence. You know. If, if, in fact, theologically, the best answer to the question "Where is Allah?" is mawjood. It's present. If someone says "Where is Allah?" say present. Mawjood. ma'akum. Right. The Quran says He's with you. Right. Right. kuntum. Wherever you are. Right. Um, in prayer we're closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? The Prophet merely said, the closest we come to the divine presence is in prayer, but Allah is always present, right? You know, uh, his presence is an extension of his eminence, right? Uh, he's, he's, he's always present, right? Can I ask you a question about what you said last week? Bismillah. So we were talking about destiny and you said that, um, you know, our choices are our experience and that destiny is a record with Allah about choices that we will make and have already made. Mm. Um, so my question was like, um, how do you explain uh, risk then? Risk? Yeah. The, the Prophet alayhi um, said that when the janeen, when the, the, the embryo is in the womb of its mother, an angel comes to that child and determines three things. One, the span of its life, right? Two, its risk. Everything that that creature is going to consume is determined right there. And three, is it Saeed or Shaqi? Is it uh, felicitous or um, wretched? And some people also say that Sa'id and Shaqi refers to jinnati or jahannami. Are they going to heaven or are they going to hell? Right? Rizq is, um, um, you know, the Prophet said that your rizq is already determined for you. فَاسْتَجْمِلُوا فِي الطَّلَبِ so seek your risk beautifully. Seek your risk in a noble way. You know, I once, you know, I thought I was asking a, a controversial question at Azhar. I said, is money made through haram sources risk? So if somebody makes money gambling, somebody makes money selling drugs, somebody makes money selling alcohol, cheating people, Right? Is, is that risk? And my aqidah teacher said, yes, that's risk. 
But the, 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 the deception is that they assume that they wouldn't have gotten that risk through the halal. That everything that was decreed for them, they would have gotten it through the, they would have got it through the lawful anyway. I Meaning anything he got through selling alcohol, he could have got it through selling <laughs> phone cards. Right? But he didn't believe that. Yeah, he didn't believe that. And um, you know, uh, the verse of the Quran, Ashaytani Idukum al Shaitan threatens you with poverty and then uh, um, you know, invites you to indecency. Right? If you don't do this, you'll be poor. What's going to happen to you? If you don't do this, you have to do this. You're not going to get any money. And the promise of rizq is what you use to repel that you know, insinuation of shaitan. No, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get everything that is determined for me, right? It's already, you know, th this is one of the reasons that um, they say Muslims have never feared the arrival of two kinds of people, children and guests, because each of them comes with their own risk, right? Anything that you come to my house and eat, it was already decreed for you. It was just, it was just, in safekeeping in my cover. This was your risk, right? And none of us can die until we consume the very last bit of our risk, right? Now, you wanna know something deep about risk? You know, one day I was thinking about, um, there's this good uh, book called, you know, uh, how Rich Countries Got Rich and Why Poor Countries Stay Poor by Eric Rennert. And I was just thinking about, I was reading this book and I was thinking about wealth inequality in the world. And it's one of those things that you're just like, subhanAllah. You know, some people, I mean, for one person to have, you know, what, what is, what is the, the richest person in the world? What is their wealth? estimated at I don't know you know the, the thing the thing that's funny to me about that they say that um one guy said that he was talking to some of the members of the uh, <laughs> the Saudi royal family and he told them Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world they all started laughing <laughs> but but uh, in, 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 in any of it um for one person to have you know that much money and another person to have maybe not even enough food for the day. You're just like, what is the hikmah ilahiyah? What is the divine wisdom in that? I was thinking, you know, wealth disparity is not the same thing as tafadul fil arzaq. It's not the same thing as rizq disparity, right? Your rizq is not made up of what's in your bank account. See, the billions that your, that your net worth is made up of, the businesses, the properties, that's not your risk. Your risk is only what you use in a day's time. That is your risk. The money that you have, the businesses that you have, the properties that you have, those might end up being someone else's risk when you die. Right? Someone will inherit you. 
And then I thought about the hadith of the Prophet in which he said in an authentic hadith, if a person wakes up in the morning and they have food, kult, kult yom, kult yomihi, food for a day, and they have markab salih, a good means of transport, getting where they need to go, and they have a meskin, they have a dwelling, right? And they have clothes, they have a melbas, they have clothes. And they're not lonely, right? They're not like in exile or something like that. They have the entire dunya and everything in it. And I thought to myself, subhanAllah, if you just look at what we experience on a 24-hour period, nobody can experience more than that. The richest person is just satiated for the day. They have a dwelling that they can be protected from the elements. It might be qualitatively bigger and more luxurious, but it still serves the same function, right? They have clothes to cover themselves and maybe they're in relationship with other people. That's the entire dunya. Everything else is just our anxiety about the future. A future that we're not even promised. Right? It, that thinking about that, it completely transformed my understanding of gratitude. Like if you wake up and you have food for the day, you're, you have clothes, you have a means of getting where you need to go, you're in relationship with people that love you, what more of the dunya do you want than that for that day? What more do you want than that, right? You know, I, I joked in this space that one day I was at Epic Burger on Pearson. George Lucas, man, the creator of Star Wars, he was standing in line in front of me. I said, subhanAllah, George Lucas is worth like six, seven billion. He eats the same sandwich that I eat. SubhanAllah. No, I was really having a moment. I was like, George, you're worth five billion and you're about to get an Epic Burger double? The same thing I eat? You know, I mean, that was the tastiest Epic Burger I ever ate in my life. <laughs> eating like a billionaire, baby. Alhamdulillah, eating like a billionaire. You know, but in all honesty, I mean, what more do you want? What more do you want? So, you know, rizq and wealth are not the same. And you do have tafadul fil arzaq. You have differences in rizq, right? And the miskeen is the person that does not have those things. They don't have food for the day. They don't have a place to go. They don't have clothes. They don't have a means of getting where they need to go. They don't have people, they're not surrounded by people who love them. They, don't they actually really don't have those things. But the disparity in rizq is much less than the disparity in wealth. So uh, to follow up on that last point, uh, let's say someone is you know, financially wealthy, but they don't have somebody that they can turn to, you know, they're lonely. Mm. Would they be considered a miskeen? And by virtue of that, um, they have a right on us to reach out to them in a way? Yeah, I mean, you know, maskana, maskana just really means neediness, right? So clearly they, they, they have a, a social maskana. You know, um, we're social creatures, man. You know, so 
Um, you know, and this is why some people even say that, you know, uh, solitary confinement is cruel and unusual punishment, right? To be, to be lonely, um, subhanAllah, is torturous, right? And I think that um, in the same way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and this is just, by the way, this is just me theorizing. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not citing a traditional text or anything. But in the same way that Allah Ta'ala tells us about the people of ta'affuf, right? These people that in regard to wealth, they don't just uh, ask openly, but they're in need. If you find them and you make your charity reach them, your charity is even more blessed because it requires more intentionality from you. Right. Some people, they just ask openly, I need, I, I need help, I need money. But some people, they have a great deal of, you know, ifa. they have a great deal of, um, how would you translate ifa? They have a great deal of uh, uh, hmm? dignity. So they won't just come out and ask, they won't just come out and ask somebody, like, help me. They have a lot of ta'afuf. If you find a person like that and say, you know, uh, not that I think you need it or anything, but if you know someone who needs this, just make sure they get it, right? Allah says that charity is even more meritorious. Similarly, there are a lot of people that are lonely, a lot of people that don't have friends, a lot of people that um, are suffering you know, from loneliness. And maybe there's a kind of dignity that they don't wanna say I mean, can you call me sometime? You know, actually, man, can we hang out sometime, right? Um, you think maybe we can go to Tet Leaf together on Tuesday nights or Wednesday nights or Thursday nights? I'd imagine if you try to find that person in spite of this glittering edifice of their wealth and their money and they have this, but you actually know, man, there's a lot of, there's a lot of unhappiness and need uh, behind that glittering facade. This would be a great act of ahuwa, a great act of brotherhood, a great act of uh, sisterhood. You know what I'm saying? And um, it, it's certainly a legitimate, you know, need, man. You know, we, we need, the Quran describes the believing community. We support each other, right? A fortified structure. There's no place for a single brick in that. You know, we have to be together. You know, we're mutually dependent upon each other, you know? And I think that um, uh, a culture that overemphasizes self-sufficiency uh, tends to lose that, that need that we have for companionship, right? So jazakallah khair, usama, alhamdulillah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, wal-asr, inna al-insana lafil khusr. إِلَّا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ وَتَوَاصَلُوا بِالْحَقِّ وَتَوَاصَلُوا بِالصَّبْرِ سُبْحَانَ رَبِّكَ رَبِّ الْعِزَّةِ عَمَّا يَصِفُونَ وَسَلَامٌ عَلَى الْمُرْسَلِينَ وَالْحَمْدُ لِلَّهِ رَبِّ الْعَالَمِينَ Thank you for tuning in. Please consider becoming a monthly sustainer by joining 1,000 Hearts of Ta'lif and committing to give $3 a day to keep this work coming to seekers, youth, and newcomers to Islam. Sign up today at www.ta'leefcollective.org forward slash donate. We hope you enjoyed the variety of sessions available and hope you benefit immensely. Allah bless you and Allah bless your loved ones.